something upside down in the copier, she would bring the wasted piece of paper back to her desk and go through a ritual of mental flagellation. Her boss would come in and find her in a coma-like state. His patience, understandably, was growing thin. I will never forget the man who arrived with his face covered with small cuts and scrapes. I wondered if he had been in a car accident or had been attacked by a rabid animal. I would have never anticipated his story. His injuries were inflicted with his own razor while he tried to shave every vestige of whisker from his face. I later learned that he viewed facial hair as unsanitary and unattractive, but he could never get his face clean enough to meet his self-imposed standard of hygiene. And this goes on with other stories just like that. Those are all examples, I think, of what we would call life-dominating sins, obsessive-compulsive disorder to be specific in those particular examples. So life-dominating sins, I don't know how often you've thought about that, but the phrase itself just kind of makes you want to crawl under a rock and wait for something to pass, right? It's just really heavy to even think about life-dominating sins. But I hope tonight, you know, it's a serious topic, like any other sin is serious, but I'm hoping tonight to help you realize that there is nothing new under the sun. Uh, God's Word has the answers we need even for life-dominating sins, and His answers are actually simple but profound. The phrase life-dominating sins typically refers to sins that have grown and festered and become much bigger and worse as they have been practiced over time. The label is often speaking about a person whose sins have grown to the point that the person can fairly be labeled as that sin. So think drunkard, uh, thief, homosexual, liar, adulterer, and various addictions and so on and so forth. Once a sin has gotten to this point, it really affects every area of a person's life, like those examples I just read to you. And many other areas of the person's life affect that sin. It's not that these sins are necessarily worse than other sins per se. All sins are serious and the drunkard isn't necessarily any more righteous than the self-righteous person. But the life-dominating sins are more frequent. They're more observable. They're more pervasive. More habitually practiced and often doing more damage and therefore they need urgent and serious attention and a total restructuring, typically, of your life. Now, I know who I'm preaching to tonight. You may not be an alcoholic or a thief here. Uh, I want to make you understand that this topic applies to all of us, though, and it applies to you. You may not be dealing with an addiction, per se, but the more respectable sins, like anxiety, fear of man, and other fears, sins with the mouth, lust, etc. can dominate a life and these principles we'll review tonight will apply to fighting those as well. Maybe you're a worrier. That's one I've had in the past. Um, and, and I think we'll always be fighting our particular tendencies to sin, right? Maybe you worry too much. Um, these respectable sins often lead to more dominating sins and they're the breeding ground, you might say, for the life-dominating sins. So my fear of man might grow and cause issues at work that leads to stress and guilt and financial troubles, and that leads to marriage problems. And pretty soon I'm trying to escape it all in a bottle or a pill. So we all struggle with sin. You know, we're just all very adept at covering it over. But the sin remains, and so this applies to all. I just didn't want any of you to check out tonight thinking that this doesn't apply to me. So I plan on keeping it very simple. I want to cover two main headings. How does this happen, and how do I overcome it? 
How does it happen? So what's happening here? How does it come about? Well, the phrase indicates a life-dominating sin. Um, it's at the heart simply a sin. And you say, well, dumb, Mike, what's your point? Uh, it's in the title. Well, I just want you to think about what does the world say about these types of things? What would the world say to us about a drunkard or a thief or a homosexual? Or what would the world say to you about your particular sin struggle, a person struggling with anxiety or worry or depression? What would they say causes these things? I think typically the answer is it's something outside of them or outside of us. It's out of their control, out of our control. Circumstances cause it. Disease, maybe. Genetics, upbringing, and so on and so forth. But we need to start with God calls it sin. God calls it sin. He doesn't blame genetics or upbringing or life circumstances. He doesn't excuse or explain the situation away. He doesn't remove responsibility from these sins. He calls it sin. Yes, a lot of those things can influence and put pressure on a person, but at the heart, it's our responses to those circumstances. It's our responses to those situations in life. At the heart of it, the problem is sin, and that gives us hope as Christians because if it's sin, it's been overcome. So let's look at the anatomy of sin. We're all driven. We act every day with the end goal, I think, of being happy. It's hardwired in us to seek and act to be happy. Like Ephesians 2.3 says, and so many others like it, apart from Christ, we live indulging the desires of our flesh, always seeking happiness. But God, from the very beginning, created us for him and for his purposes to have a relationship with him and to find our happiness in him. Full joy is found in our God. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Listen to Romans 15, 13. It says, I love this because it's so simple and I think so profound. It says, There is joy and peace in believing. There's joy and peace in believing. But as Hebrews 3.13 says, and the serpent in the garden illustrates, sin is deceitful, and it lies and misleads and twists truth and plays on our desires or lusts for happiness and leads us away from our God, the only one that can satisfy that longing. Indeed, in Genesis 4.7, sin is personified, and God says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Listen to uh, what Jay Adams wrote about that particular scene. He says, fundamentally, the problem of the first sin amounted to this. Adam and Eve opted for the satisfaction of desire rather than for obedience to the commandment of God. The devil appealed to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Over against this was God's commandment, you shall not eat. The options given to them are the same options that one faces now. They reflect two distinct moralities, two antithetical religions, two discrete manners of life. The one says, I shall live according to feeling, and the other, I shall live as God says. As one counselee put it succinctly, I hate her and I hit her. When Adam sinned, he was abandoning the commandment-oriented life of love for the feeling-oriented life of lust. There are only these two ways of life, the feeling-motivated life of sin oriented towards self and the commandment-oriented life of holiness oriented toward God. Each day, each moment, we are choosing this day who we will serve. 
as Joshua 24 says, and we base it on what's going to make us happy and our feelings are less in our perception of what is true about what will make us happy. And on that we act. Each decision is an act of worship. Day in, day out, moment by moment, second by second, we are worshiping. And we often try to knock God off his throne as our lusts take his place as our idol. And if practiced long enough, it leads to a life-dominating sin that kills and destroys. We are creatures of habit, and we can easily fall into ungodly, sinful habit patterns. Proverbs 4.23 says, To watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Jesus said, It is out of the heart that evil thoughts, murders, and adulteries flow. John Stott, when he was reading and commenting on Galatians 6-7, where it says we reap what we sow, he said this. Maybe you've heard this before. I think it's a powerful thought that he, insight that he had. He says, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, you'll reap a habit. Sow a habit, you'll reap a character. And sow a character, and you'll reap a destiny. The world says that our problems are outside of us and we need to look inside to find the answers. But notice from those verses and so many others like them that God says, no, the battle begins inside of us in our mind and in our heart because it begins with our desires and our thoughts. We can't blame sin on circumstances or people in our life or anything external. So a quick side note for you guys, my my brothers and my sisters here. I don't know how adept everybody is here to doing this, but it's extremely important to know and be aware that the battle is internal and to learn to look at what's going on in your heart. What's driving you? What's motivating you? When you act, when you do something, when you respond to a situation, what is it, what was it that was driving you and motivating you in that moment? It's a, it's a, it's a most of what happens in counseling, figuring out what's going on in the heart. And that way we can see our ungodly heart stirrings while they're still just a thought. That, we'll talk about that more later. Turn to James 1. This is exactly what James 1 illustrates for us. I know that I'm preaching to a group of people where I think a lot of this will be stirring you up by way of reminder, but hey, we need that all the time. So James 1, in verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. If you don't know that word for lust in this passage, this is simply a really strong desire. There's a deep desire in your heart for something. It'll start with a thought. There is something that you think you need or something that you want that will make you happy. It could be good things or it could be bad things. Maybe you think you need or strongly want respect. Guys, we do that. Control, we all do that. A family, a car, any material possession. Maybe it's finances are your struggle. Maybe it's health. Maybe you have five kids like me and you just want some peace and quiet sometimes. Maybe that's your desire that you think you need and you really, really want. And as Jay Adams says, it crosses over into sin when it takes the place of obedience to God. The lie says we will find happiness and satisfaction in whatever that thing is in something other than the will of God. Life-dominating sins always, I think sin really, always have to do with wrong thoughts about God 
misplaced worship, a problem in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we choose to sin, we're believing a lie about God in that moment. It's very, very subtle in the beginning. Sin doesn't start out with a blatant accusation that God is not good. In the beginning, it may start with just living life with little awareness of God. Maybe you're just not even aware that he's there. Little dependence on him. You're living life as if you don't need him. So we justify taking matters into our own hands and making it happen on our own. Instead of trusting God that he knows what we need and provides what is best and withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly, we move forward, taking matters into our own hands and creeping closer and closer to sin while God slips further and further in the background. Think back to Genesis 4-7. Instead of mastering sin, we are being mastered by it. Enticed like a, a fish with a hook being reeled in. And these lies are allowed to linger and ferment in our minds and we're carried away. We are enticed by the desire and its perceived rewards and carried away by the lie. And eventually lust is conceived and it gives birth to sin. So notice the progression. Sin is a slippery slope, a slow fade, as the song says. And sin isn't satisfied with just a piece of you or a little battle won. Sin wants it all. It wants all of you. It wants the whole you, and it won't stop until it has you. John Owen said, Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin of that kind. Every unclean thought of, or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. Maybe turn over to Ephesians 4 real quick. Look at one other place where you can see this idea of a slow fade that cause, causes huge harm. Ephesians 4, uh, verse 17. It says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The progression here starts from the bottom up. You can see it starts with greediness and lust that leads to the practice of impurity. And having given themselves over to that, it led to callousness, which is scary. Really scary. Because having become callous, our heart becomes hard. And that leads to ignorance. And that leads to exclusion from the life of God and results in darkened understanding and futility of mind. Think back to Romans 1. This is kind of what happens, is it not? Another quote from John Owen. You'll hear a lot from him tonight. The custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. The custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. The course of this world takes away the shame of it. 
So what's the point? Sin destroys. Sin kills. It's the little things in life, the little lapses in discipline, the little respectable sins, the small stuff that can so easily take us down. A life-dominating sin is simply normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill sin, unchecked. It's daily sin not fought against. It's sin allowed to continue, maybe out of ignorance or laziness or apathy, but point being, it's a, it's a, it's a lack of fighting against sin. It's sin that progresses and festers and grows. It's a sin that's fed instead of starved. The little leads to bigger and worse, and we don't take it seriously. We're really forgetting that Christ had to die for even the smallest sin. It's the exact opposite. It's a far cry from thinking the way Peter tells us to think. In 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, listen to how he, and actually I'm going to start in 16. Contrast what I've been talking about, a way of dealing with sin and a way of living our life with how Peter tells us to do that. He says, it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Because you know something. You know that you were redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your fathers. Sorry, we're not redeemed for that. But with precious blood, as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It's a far cry from thinking that way and handling our life that way. Often someone serious about even the smallest sin is labeled as over the top. Maybe a a self-righteous Pharisee or something of that nature, or legalistic, when in fact it's, the very, it's very possibly the pursuit of holiness we are all called to have and the wisdom of God and not take sin lightly. John Owen said again, let no man pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation also. These two are too closely united to be separated. He does not truly hate the fruit who delights in the root. So, brothers and sisters, we need to fight sin at even the smallest level before it grows in power and scope. We need to deal with it in our own hearts at that temptation level before it conceives and gives birth to sin. So how does an addict become an addict in a life-dominating sin? It begins with an internal desire. Coupled with wrong thinking is contrary to the Word of God. Contrary to his will and his commandments. And that leads to a sinful action. Which if continued leads to a habit. And the heart grows callous and hard. Which leads to a character. Excluded from the life of God. Darkened in understanding. Futile thinking which will lead to a destiny if not repented of. And as James said it ends in death. One sin in one area will lead to other sins in other areas. Sin feeds off itself and grows and festers. Any Spider-Man fans in here? Raise your hand if you're a Spider-Man fan so I know how much of this I need to explain. So nobody likes Spider-Man. A few of the young ones. Has anybody seen the Spider-Man movies? I'm not talking about the... Okay, so the, the ones were a little bit older, not the most recent ones, but okay. You remember Susanna? Yeah? You remember the black Spider-Man? Yeah? Everybody loves Spider-Man. He's nice, he's... 
honest, he's humble. I think he's the coolest superhero, and he's got my money against any other superhero except for maybe Superman. But in Spider-Man 3, there is this black stuff that shows up. For you guys who haven't seen it, Spider-Man is his normal, awesome self. But in Spider-Man 3, there's this black stuff that shows up, this mysterious black stuff, and it attaches to his bike. And pretty soon, it attaches to him. He didn't notice it at first, but as it attaches to him, pretty soon it starts to spread. And in the beginning, he didn't think anything of it. As a matter of fact, he liked it at first. As a matter of fact, he's like, this is awesome. And he's, just, he's getting off on his little high. It was fun for him at first. It was no big deal. It made him feel good. But the longer he walked in that stuff, for those of you who have seen it, if you haven't seen it, the longer he walked in that stuff, his, his entire personality changed. He goes from a nice guy to a jerk. He goes from honest to deceitful. He goes from a servant to selfish. He goes from humble, humble to arrogant righteous to evil, and then it started affecting all of his relationships. It affected his work. It affected everything, his happiness. He used to walk down the street, and he'd get smiles from all the ladies. Now he walks down the street, and everybody's like, what are you, and who are you? You need to, you need to go somewhere else. He looked up eventually in the movie, and he was miserable. He didn't like who he had become. Sin had taken over and overruled and affected every part of his life. There's a picture of a life-dominating sin. There's a picture of what sin, little sin, will do to you if you don't actively fight against it. As Owens said, sin aims always at the utmost and brings people to ruin. So that's the first point. What's going on here? How does it happen? So how do you overcome it? Well, in studying for this, I was quite frankly overwhelmed by the amount of scriptures that could apply to this section. It's, it's all over the place. It's, all of it, it seems like, is relevant in some way. So what's going to follow is really just a small sampling of relevant truth, and it'll be pretty high level. But we need to remember that contrary to what secular minds and thoughts have, have told us, there is hope. There is hope. You're not terminally ill and a lifelong alcoholic. You're not terminally ill or have a genetic defect and you're going to be in a lifelong situation with these sins. It's sin and therefore it's been overcome. It's been overcome and can be overcome in your life through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's great hope because of the God of hope. A person in this situation needs a total restructuring of life and it starts with the gospel. Surprise, surprise. By the way, at the end of that movie, you know where he ends up? Anybody know? And a church. And there's a mighty struggle, but he's finally able to overcome that black stuff. The gospel of truth of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is the best change agent there ever was and ever will be. The remedy is encountering Jesus and his truth. The first and most potent remedy is Jesus and his truth and seeing him. Think about it, guys. Think about Paul. Paul, in all his sin, as fallen as he was, was shockingly hostile toward God, towards Christ. But he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and he turned, and he followed Jesus. And he left that life behind, radically changed. Zacchaeus is another example, the chief tax collector. And again, as any unbeliever, he had a life dominated by sin, most likely, and likely stealing and deceit as a tax collector, judging even by his own admission 
that he was going to repay four times of what he defrauded people. After seeing Jesus, he repented and he turned radically changed. And counseling has been one of my greatest joys to see an alcoholic come in and see the gospel come into that person's life and the eyes are open and the ears are open and that sin that has ruled over that person for decades probably and they're freed. The chains are broken immediately. Or a foul mouth who sees Christ, hears the gospel, repents and puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and now this sin that he couldn't do anything to conquer, now it's without even effort. It just happens. It's a change that Christ made in that person. He was powerless before. Now he doesn't even want to do those things anymore. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, a familiar passage I know, but let's be reminded of another example or a list of examples from 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. This is a list of people in life-dominating sins, and how did they escape? It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. It's an encounter with Jesus Christ that sets us free from life-dominating sins. We see the pearl of great price and we're willing to give up all because it's more valuable. It's the one true treasure. The glory of our God and King and we will gladly sell all because it's clear now. Wrong thoughts about God are replaced with truth. The relationship with Jesus is restored. The truth sets us free. When we see, and I mean really see, we can't help but change. Jesus showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Somehow he wed his perfect holiness and its requirements with his holy love and made a way for me to be reconciled through the blood. And it's all grace. And this truth moves us. It should move you. It should move me. It should move us. It affects change. It changes us at the very, very core. Like I said, our, it changes your desires. It changes your want to. One of my favorite verses, and, and Chris read this last week, but we're going to look at it again in 2 Corinthians 5. Go ahead. You can turn there, 5.14. It's so powerful. We use it in counseling all the time. I do. Because this is what I want to hold out for anybody who's struggling with sin and struggling to overcome. It starts with Jesus Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. Or I think the NIV, if you have the NIV, it says compels us. Having concluded something, we've concluded something that one died for all, and therefore all died. Personalize it. You died. Christ died for you if you're in Christ, and you died. And he died for you so that you would no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. In your sin struggle, life-dominating sin or otherwise, again, what is compelling you in those moments? What is moving you in your thoughts and actions? 
Think about, if you can think about when, your last sin, the last time you lost it, the last time you got angry. Have you looked in your heart? Do you know why? What was it you wanted? What was it you were after? What was motivating you? What were you living for in that moment? Was Christ or God anywhere in that thought process? What if in that moment you could stop and maybe because of what we're going to talk about in a minute, Christ was there and, and God was there and the gospel was there and you were meditating on that. Do you think you would respond differently in that moment? Man, if a person gets this problem solved, really, problem solved, life dominating sin over this is a person who sees the reality and glory of Jesus and is moved by the love Christ had for him in spite of him. The person realizes, I'm dead. There's no more Mike. And why did Jesus die for me? He, he died that I would no longer live for myself. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. I'm dead. There's no more might. The old is gone, the new has come. The gospel changes me at the very core. The gospel changes people at the very core. The very root level, there's a passing from death to life. The child of wrath becomes a child of God. You're in darkness and you go to light. There will be a corresponding change in fruit from this. There can be nothing else. It's inevitable and it's all from God who reconciled me to him. And now I'm his ambassador. This turns self-centered, self-worshipping lives upside down and the change is inevitable. So far, the flavor of all that is for an unbeliever, right? That's kind of the, the bent of that line of thought. But you know what? It's not really any different for us in here who believe in Christ. Have you ever found yourself responding to the gospel with a, I know, I know already. If I went through the gospel right now, what would go through your head? Yeah, I've heard that before, Mike. Thank you. We're at a Bible church. You probably wouldn't say it out loud, but in your heart, I have. I've done that in my heart. Like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Can we move on to that next thing? Do you ever forget the gospel in your daily living and spiritual battle? I think there's a temptation, a tendency, I think, for us to even grow weary of the gospel. Not purposely, but I think sin and in our forgetfulness and in our pride and in our going about our way and our busy American lives, we just forget. We start to get a little ho-hum about it. And in dealing with life-dominating sins, that's actually what is often the case. Sin clouds out the gospel. And the gospel starts to get covered over. And pretty soon you can't see it anymore. And the believer needs an encounter with Jesus or a greater awareness of Jesus and the fear of the Lord to overcome sin, just like the un unbeliever needs his first encounter. And that's exactly where Paul goes in Romans 6. I don't know, I think Del Aguila has a direct line with God, and so he knows exactly what songs to play. Because that song we sang last was absolutely perfect for tonight. Chris is a blessing. If you want to turn to Romans 6, this is what Paul does. He takes the believer back to the gospel. As the basis for overcoming sin. In Romans 6, 2, he says, How shall we who die to sin still live in it? 
Verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? There's that idea of dying again. There's great spiritual implications to that. So where does Paul go for the believer to crush sin? He goes back to the gospel. He reminds them of the truth of what's been done for them. He says, set your eyes on things above. Get your eyes off the here and now and the finite in yourself and cast your eyes on the Lord. Remember what he did for you. It's a battle for us, but the ultimate battle has been won and we have the spirit and his power now to overcome. Romans 6.4 goes on to say, this happened so that we would walk in newness of life. As Christ was resurrected to new life, we have been brought into life united with him for the purpose of walking in new life. That our body of sin might be done away with, it says in verse 6. And we would no longer be slaves to sin, in verse 6. That we would be alive to God, in verse 10 and 11. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to change a life dominated by sin. Like Paul said in, in Romans 1, it's the power of God to salvation. So we need to share it with others, and we need to preach it to ourselves. You've heard that before. Here's your reminder. Preach the gospel to yourself. Don't stop doing that. Don't get tired of doing that. Don't get lazy in doing that. It's not just for salvation. It's for sanctification, too. Milton Vincent wrote, Over the course of time, preaching the gospel to myself every day has made more of a difference in my life than any other discipline I have ever practiced. I find myself sinning less. But just as importantly, I find myself recovering my footing more quickly after sinning due to the immediate comfort found in the gospel. I have also found that when I am absorbed in the gospel, everything else I am supposed to be toward God and others seems to flow out of me more naturally and passionately. And you guys experience that? Doing right is not always easy, he says, but it is never more easy than when one is breathing deeply the atmosphere of the gospel. There's great comfort in remembering the gospel. It's a compelling ministry of love and forgiveness that moves one to love God in return and fear him and follow him and obey him. But also to have the humility to acknowledge our sin and confess it and turn from it. We don't have to act like we have it all together and therefore cover it over. Isn't that a temptation for us as well? We put on our stained glass masquerade and we come and everything's really good. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm good. Just had a knockdown, drag out fight with my wife in the car, but no, I'm good. We act like we have it all together because it's just we're forgetting the gospel. We're forgetting it's not me. It's not my righteousness. I'm a wretch. But Christ died for me. And I can confess that, and I'm free in him and in his truth. The gospel removes the mirage of righteousness through the law and frees us up to agree with him and acknowledge sin and confess it and receive mercy. Like it says in Proverbs. That flames love get this, if, if that's where we're at, then that flames my love more. If, if I've got it all together, then I don't need God so much. But if I know I don't have it all together, but Christ died for me, and now I have a relationship with him and an inheritance in heaven, well, man, I love my Lord. It flames the devotion of our hearts. Spurgeon said, To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. 
He puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say this is sacred and this is secular is, to my mind, diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. Peter saw a sheet let down from heaven in which were all manner of beasts and four-footed creatures which he, had, which he was bidden to kill and eat. And when he refused because they were unclean, he was rebuked by a voice from heaven saying, What God hath cleansed, do not call common. The Lord hath cleansed your houses, hath cleansed your bed chambers, your tables. He has made the common pots and pans of your kitchens to be the, as the bowls before the altar. If you know what you are and live according to your high calling, the sacred has absorbed the secular. So that's the first way to overcome it, the gospel. Second point, mortification. Beyond the gospel, is there anything else that we need to do? Are we just supposed to sit back and meditate on the gospel and wait to be zapped? Jay Adams wrote, There is no such thing as instant godliness. Today there is instant pudding, instant coffee, instant houses, shipped on trucks, instant everything. And counselors want instant godliness as well. And don't we? They want somebody to give them three easy steps to godliness that they can take next Friday and be godly. They want counselors to speak magic words, sprinkle wiffle dust on them, or wave their Bibles over them to effect instant change. The trouble is, godliness doesn't come that way. He wrote that in 1973, by the way. Well, the gospel leads us to mortification of sin. There are things God has called us to as his ambassadors that will guard us and protect us from life-dominating sin. For the sake of time, I'm not going to turn here. You can maybe mark down Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 4. But think about Israel. God saved them, redeemed them, and was bringing them into the promised land. And he told Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And the Malachites, he told them to destroy them all. Don't leave one. Because he knew that any intermarrying with them, any intermingling with them, any flirting with this group of people was going to destroy them and take them away from him. And it's the same with sin. That's a picture of sin. In a similar way, this is how God wants us to deal with sin. No quarter given. No intermingling. No intermarrying. 1 Timothy 4.8 says that we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And the discipline carries the thought of work, effort, spiritual or holy sweat is what Kent Hughes called it. Ordering our life in every aspect daily Christ said to take up a cross daily and to follow him. That gives the indication of a daily battle inside the Christian. We're to throw off sin. In Romans 13, 14, it says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. We must kill sin and pursue righteousness. There's no magic bullet. Fear the Lord and obedience to his commands to flee, run, cut off, tear out. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him bearing fruit. Isn't that what we think? I don't know what you thought when you heard life-dominating sin. That label just makes uh, We have a tendency, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something I'm missing. There's got to be something new. There's got to be some magic bullet. 
No, there's not. Hard work, discipline, and we'll get into what this looks like. Sin has gotten to the point of a life domination requires sin that's gotten to the point of life dominating sin requires all of life to be looked at and restructured in obedience to Christ. Romans eight twelve says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So God's solution is to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Instead of sin filling and controlling us, dominating our life, God says, let the filling of the Spirit control you and affect you in every area. So turn to Ephesians 5, 18, where you can see this. For those who may not be familiar, or even just again for stirring us up by way of reminder. Notice verse 15, this is following the command to be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk, there's a life-dominating sin, with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The very opposite of being filled with a substance and controlled by that substance is to be filled with the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit. This is a command. It's a command. It's to be continually carried out. You're not to stop this. You're to continually do this. You're to continually be filled. And he says, a person filled with the Spirit will look like, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So how do you do it? What role do you play? The interesting thing about that little section there is the command is also passive. It's something that's done to you. So first thing, guys, is we got to be praying. <laughs> Beg God for this. Continually ask God, will you please, Father, help me to be controlled by your spirit. But the list of fruit for this is also very similar. You can turn over to Colossians 3.16. If you're not familiar, and be reminded, the, the, the fruit of being filled by the Spirit looks eerily similar to being filled with the Word of God, letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so by judging from those two lists of fruit, of being filled with the Word of God and being filled by the Spirit of God, we can discern it looks like as far as our responsibility in being filled with the Spirit is let's fill ourselves with the Word of God. 
Be dwelling on the Word of God. Let it dwell in you. I don't have time to do this, but John 15, I think, has the same idea. John 15, when it says to abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. He says apart from abiding in him and him and us, we can do nothing. And so I don't know if you've ever thought, how do I abide in him and how does he abide in me? And I think he gives us some interesting clues there in that passage. How does he abide in me? He says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. In verse 5, abide in me and I in you. Because apart from him we can do nothing. And then in verse 7, he, he switches it. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Jesus seems to equate him abiding in me to his words abiding in me. And he goes on to say, if his word abides in me, I can ask whatever I wish, and that his Father is glorified that I bear fruit, which is exactly what happens when he abides in me. Well, how do I abide in him? Again, verse 4, abide in me. Verse 5, abide in me. Verse 7, abide in me. In verse 9, he switches it to abide in my love. And it looks like Christ is equating those two again as well. And so if he tells us how to abide in him next, it says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And so what does this mean? This is just another place in Scripture, I think, where we can see this idea that apart from his word and obedience to his commandments, we can do nothing. Did you catch that? If you keep his commandments and having his word in you is how you abide in him and him in you, and apart from him you can do nothing, then apart from obedience to his commands and being filled with his word, you can do nothing. And you notice... At the end of that passage in verse 11, the fruit of all of that is joy and happiness, which is where we set out in the beginning that we're all seeking anyway. So we're back to the word again and being filled with his spirit. And think back to Matthew 4. Isn't this exactly what Christ did? Christ, being filled with the spirit, is led into the wilderness. And the father of sin comes and tempts him. And what does he do? The word is in him and he obeys it. The word of God and obeying it and he killed sin and he resisted the devil and the devil fleed from him. So to recap so far, we must bask in the gospel and that gospel hopefully will cause us to mortify sin. And we do that by putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit and being filled with the spirit. We must be praying to that end, but we also must be dwelling on the word of God, letting it fill us and then seeking to obey it. And so that takes us to the Word of God. So, that, so what's in the Word of God? We have more than I could even begin to talk about with you tonight in the Word of God. It tells us His will. It tells us command after command after command that aren't burdensome, but they're guardrails for our life. Everything we need for training in righteousness for the person stuck in life-dominating sins. There are texts that tell us simply to stop sinning. 1 Corinthians 15.34 and 1 Timothy 5.22, he just says, stop sinning. There's texts that tell us how to pray and when to pray and what to pray for. There are texts that tell us that we need to be with God's people in his church and to not forsake the assembling together. 
He has saved us to bring us into his church to be his hands and feet, to be a part of his body, to do the good works that he's prepared for us to do. He tells us in his word to keep short sin accounts and to confess our sins and to repent. It's such a huge first step, overcoming sin, avoiding life-dominating sins, just simply confessing there's power. Have you guys experienced that? When you will simply confess it and agree with him, confess it to him, confess it to yourself, confess it to other people, there's power in that. It's his provision for us to keep us safe with him. Regular and frequent intake of the word of God. There's texts that tell us to do that. There's, there's texts that tell us to guard our thought life. What's going through our minds? Are you listening to yourself all day or are you talking to yourself all day? What are you talking to yourself? What are you saying to yourself? Are you <clears throat> condemning yourself all the time? Or are you remembering that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus? There are texts that tell us to resist temptation. There are texts that tell us, in like in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy First uh, Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 6, to flee some sins. Flee. Especially you young folks, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 6 for you. There are some sins you, you're called to fight. There are other sins, he says, tuck tail and run. Run for your life. Immorality, sexual immorality, idolatry, greed or love of money, youthful lust, and so on and so forth. There are texts that tell us to be careful about our relationships. Who you hang around with, he who walks with the wise will be wise. There are texts that tell us to be careful what activities we, we engage in. Don't present the members of your bodies as instruments to unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, it says in Romans 6. There are texts that give us life goals to be pleasing to the Lord. There are texts, I mean, we could go on and on and on, my friends. We could add texts on marriage and eating habits, and the list goes on. We need to help ourselves by feasting on the gospel truth and his word so that it oozes out of our every pore. And we are doing it instead of deluding ourselves by simply hearing it, applying biblical truths to each area of our life. That's abiding in him and him in us. The Bible goes on and uses all kinds of texts. To wrap up, John Owen, a few quotes from John Owen. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death, he says, your state is not at all to be measured by the opposition that sin makes to you, but by the opposition you make to it. We're to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and run the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus and striving against sin. And one last quote from John Owen 
Let our hearts admit, I am poor and weak. Satan is too subtle, too cunning, too powerful. He watches constantly for advantages over my soul. The world presses in upon me with all sorts of pressures, pleas, and pretenses. My own corruption is violent, tumultuous, enticing, and entangling. As it conceives sin, it wars within me and against me. Occasions and opportunities for temptation are innumerable. No wonder I do not know how deeply involved I have been with sin. Therefore, on God alone will I rely for my keeping. I will continually look to him. Let me pray for you guys and for me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to put this into practice, Father. It's, we're tempted to think that there's something else. There's something that we haven't heard yet. Or there's some other secret. There's some hocus pocus. There's something out there maybe that we're missing <clears throat> in our fight against sin. But, Lord, your word is really clear and simple but profound. There's... We're looking in all the wrong places. If we're looking anywhere other than the gospel of your son, if we're looking anywhere else other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our God, if we're looking anywhere else other than your word and his word and the Spirit's help, God, help us not to settle for um, cheap substitutes that don't deliver. I pray, Father, you would renew our devotion to you again as we meditate on the gospel. I pray, Father, you would renew our resolve to abide with you, to be with you, to be in your word, Lord, to be thinking about it, to be striving to live it out through prayer and dependence on your spirit. And God, that we would not take sin lightly. Lord, help us not to gloss over our sin. Help us not to cover it over. Help us not to to play around the edges of it, Father, and think that we can handle it, you know, pray that we would live with a right fear, uh, considering um, what you've done. God, that we would be compelled and controlled by your love, because we remember that you died for us. And you died for us, that we wouldn't live for ourselves, Father, but we would live for you. And so, Father, please help every person in here to do that. Uh, Lord, I know this may not be new for many of us, Lord, but may it be new again for us that we would live it out. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I think you're dismissed. What was, there was one note I was supposed to share with you. There's no games, is that right? Is that the, that's the note? So I think you're welcome to, what what you got, Chris? Chris will be back up next week, so you want to make sure you're here. All right, so um, you're dismissed. Mm -hmm.